I watched a colleague of mine working and I suddenly remembered the light bulb moment that had made me think I can do that. Mm. And it was watching that colleague a few years ago when she was mentoring me, it was watching her giving out flyers for the new choir she was setting up. That was the light bulb moment where I thought I could do that. And I realized that actually I was a product of this phenomenon. I actually genuinely hadn't considered professional music as a viable route until I had seen a female colleague who was about 10 years ahead of me doing it. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. After studying English literature at Durham University, conductor Tory Longden took a circuitous route into music after seriously considering a career in law and starting out as an assistant speech therapist. Achieving a distinction for her MA in choral conducting at the Royal Academy of Music, amongst many commitments Tory has in her working life, she conducts the Covent Garden Choir and acts as an adjudicator for programmes such as Songs of Praise and Gareth Malone's The Choir. During lockdown, Tori co-founded the Stay at Home Choir, a digital platform that has allowed classical artists to connect with music lovers all around the world. I grew up just south of Manchester in a little town called Wilmslow and my mum was a primary school PE teacher um, my dad worked with cars um, in various ways and I grew up sort of in a very much a suburban environment, all girls primary, all girls secondary, got to wow. university and sort of thought, who are, what, what is this witchcraft? <laughs> Boys! <laughs> I know, so that was fun. And I really wasn't, uh, I wasn't born with my feet in musical compost, really. With my mum being a, a PE teacher, she was very much all about sports as an extracurricular activity. Um, and she couldn't get her head around the fact that I, um, I wasn't very good at playing team sports. I was very good at, uh, you would like the ball in that goal. Fine, I'll do that. I'll get it there. Um, <laughs> like, no, no, darling, that's not the point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think that was? What do you, why do you think you weren't good at working with other people? Was it that or was it something different? Um, I think um, it was more that I was quite happy. I was an only child. I was quite happy going off on my own and, uh, and, and doing things. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I just wanted to be doing music. I wanted to be making music, doing a load of drama and uh, team sports just sort of never really wet my whistle, I think. So where did the love for music come from? If it wasn't from your mum and dad, was it extracurricular experiences or just something that you digested on a daily basis? Where did that love I don't know, yeah. be planted? Thinking, 
thinking back through my early years and trying to sort of identify where that, that musical impetus came from, I think the only thing I, I alight on is my grandpa was a boy chorister you know, back in the 1920s, probably, and he was born in 1918, so he would have been uh, he would have been singing as a boy treble through the 20s and the early 30s when cathedral music was really the main way that young boys particularly got into singing. In fact, it was much more common for young boys to sing than it was for young girls at that time and because of the cathedral music tradition. And he also had one of those amazing electric Hammond organs. Ooh. You know, the ones that yeah, you see I do. Like, I at do. the top of the tower ballroom going... Boop, 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 yes. Um, wow. Rather than a church organ, it was very much a pootily Hammond organ. Um, it was all sort of brown and fawn like everything was in the 70s and 80s. And it had loads of light up buttons, which for a young girl was transfixing. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. This was a magical instrument that my grandpa could play. And if I was lucky, I'd get to sit on his lap and he'd let me press the sort of like bossa nova rhythm button and, and other things like that. So I had this really interactive experience of playing around with different musical sounds from a very early age. Uh, but it was very much through my grandpa rather than through my parents. And did you study music at Durham? You went to Durham University, didn't you? I actually studied English literature at Durham. Um, yeah, I spent most of my early life going, I'm not going to be a musician. He'd be a musician. That's a, that's a silly <laughs> idea. And of course, without a role model of professional musicians and with very few conductors, female conductors around to act as role models, it wasn't something that I really identified as a reality for me until later on. I was 24 when I kind of realized that it was a possibility and I decided to sort of take the leap and follow it. Um, but I studied English literature with a view to going into law and doing a law conversion afterwards. So I did sort of mini pupillages and various different legal placements throughout my time at university. Uh, and yeah, that was the idea and that was the aim. And just a few sort of various points changing moments in my life mm. a few various things that knocked me into a different direction finally led me to realize that I'd been kind of gunning for music all along so that element of you can't be what you can't see I mean you just mentioned that that was pretty intrinsic for you and maybe stopping you in thinking that was an actual viable option for your career until you were in your mid-20s do you think like, for young girls for young girls now that is still an issue I do, yes, I really do, because I think that until the grassroots change that we're seeing at the moment, and we've been seeing for the last decade or so, filters through to a really senior level, mm. we're still going to see that discrepancy, and it's going to be a very, very slow burn. The other thing I'd add about that is that it's amazing how embedded and hidden that sort of fact of you have to see it to be it actually is, because I remember when someone first told me that that was a phenomenon my response was oh, it sounds like rubbish I I became a conductor and a b and c mm. and it was only about two years later after I'd first heard that it was a, a thing that I watched a colleague of mine working and I suddenly remembered the light bulb moment that had made me think I can do that mm. and it was watching that colleague a few years ago when she was mentoring me it was watching her giving out flyers for the new choir she was setting up that was the light bulb moment where I thought I could do that. And I realized that actually I was a product of this phenomenon. I actually genuinely hadn't considered professional music as a viable route until I had seen a female colleague who was about 10 years ahead of me doing it. 
You just mentioned it there, the importance of mentors as well, right? Someone to actually guide you and help put you in the right direction, connect you with people, help you network, broaden your horizons, ultimately. What was your first job out of education? Was it into music or did you do something else? <laughs> I've had a really, you did something else. <laughs> I've had a really circuitous route to get to, <laughs> to get and mostly it was because I was thinking, who's going to do that? What a silly idea. I'm going to get a proper job like my mum told me. Uh, I, I did English and then I got to the end of my, my English degree and for various reasons I had to graduate a year later than everybody else. Um, and that gave me a little bit of thinking time. And I thought, okay, right, let's break this down. What do I love doing and how can I do that without being a musician? Mm. <laughs> and I actually went into speech therapy because I oh, thought really? I love voice. Interesting. <laughs> fascinated by how it works as a mechanical instrument, how different psychological phenomena can influence it. And I went and I was an assistant speech therapist in deepest, darkest Lincoln. Um, <laughs> how was that for you? Oh, Lincolnshire is a beautiful, <laughs> it beautiful is area it is stunning. Um, yeah. and I would actually recommend it to anybody. I actually got given the job in Grantham to start with. I remember standing by the printers in university waiting, begging my dissertation to print on deadline day and um, getting a phone call <laughs> saying, would you like to be in Lincoln or Grantham? And I was like, never heard of either of those places. And she was like, I'll choose for you. You're going to Lincoln. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it would have been much better than Grantham. Sorry to anybody who's, uh, who's from Grantham. <laughs> also a wonderful place, much better connected to London. So tell us um, more about what do you do now? Tell us more about where you're at in your career right now. So I finished my master's in conducting at the Royal Academy of Music about three years ago now. And since then I've been working, I say since then, I've been working really the whole time because I wasn't in a position to sort of not work and pay for myself through a master's. Mm. Um, so I was very lucky that most of my work was conducting work. And so I've been sort of building up a portfolio since I left university for my undergraduate degree in 2012. But having that master's has really helped to take my work to the next level. So I now work as an adjudicator for shows like Songs of Praise and Gareth Malone's TV competitions and for various music festivals around the country. And I wave my arms. I run several choirs, including the Covent Garden Chorus, which is in the centre of town in London. And I run a Kodai-based music education programme. So Kodai is like, if you've seen The Sound of Music, it's do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, di, da. That kind of system is a whole way to, uh, to teach music to young children. And I, I run a programme that uses that method in Shenzhen, in China, which is really interesting because there are some unusual but really useful parallels between Hungarian music, which is where this system originated, and Chinese classical music so we're sort of exploring that and pulling out different things that are helping us to teach young children over there wow that's very varied also I watched some snippets of you on the choir you don't hold back do you you're literally to the point forthright as someone's asking your, your opinion like I hated it that was literally it that's all you said I was like crikey this girl is just you know, you know. is fantastic are you like that day to day or is this just a a version of you that you've amplified you know better than anybody how heavily edited those kind of things mm. can be. I was as surprised as everybody else it was quite 
I don't know, you can, I can take my eyes off you. I was like, wow, she's got my attention right there. But clearly you know oh. your stuff too. So if you're going to listen to anybody, and the whole point of having judges on programmes like this, and you get more vested into it, which is why you would arguably prefer Strictly Come Dancing over the X Factor, is people actually know what they're talking about. So you're more likely to listen to someone like yourself who has had years in this field than some celebrity who they've got for ratings and things like that. Yeah, it's a difficult line to tread. And I'm really glad that they did choose experts for that particular show, which was mm. Gareth Malone, The Choir. I'm really glad they did uh, because it made our job a lot easier. You know, we always agreed, to be honest. When we got into a room, we, just, we always agreed. There was very rarely any kind of debate, which for a producer is not ideal. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> so they were trying to sort of draw out any things we could discuss we, we never argued because they just got a load of people who all valued sound vocal technique, great music making in a room together. And, yeah. But the tricky line to tread is this. Amateur music making, to be honest, and professional music making is so personal and so intimate. And it's so bound up with self-confidence and self-belief. I don't think, I know that those shows I came across as very harsh, but there's no place for direct subjective criticism in music in my opinion because mm. music as itself as a thing is so subjective that one person stating what they believe to be right or wrong or good or bad apart from you know if there's something really technical that is amiss it's always subjective mm. and there's no point ripping somebody down especially if it's something that someone is doing from an amateur perspective and they're doing it because they love it there's nothing constructive to be gained from ripping somebody down so whenever I'm adjudicating I'm always trying to provide a constructive perspective you know if I criticize it's in order to set that up in contrast to a more positive suggestion mm. you know and I and actually you know I, I know you say that it seems like I didn't hold back I do think that that more balanced approach to providing feedback and criticism is responsible because you don't want to undermine or tear down the musicians that you're working with and also arguably if I if I were them and I've had it in my own life and I think everybody's had it in their own career where you don't want someone to always be sycophantic and kind of like oh you're so wonderful you're so great thank you for that you want like you say you want constructive criticism that you can actually take away and learn from and better yourself which is what that's all about isn't it yeah, if you're in that role, in that capacity, you have a responsibility to provide something which is useful. You know, otherwise, yeah. there's, no, there's no reason for it. Yeah. You know, some people do enter competitions just for um, praise and validation. But I would argue that competitive environments are just as much about personal improvement as they are about winning. Yeah, I agree. I think you're on the money. You are part of the Women of the Future Network now. And it's, ta -da! <laughs> and it's all about being kind and collaborative. Is there a standout moment or person in particular that you would say help mould your interests or help set you off on this trajectory, particularly moving from speech therapy into where you are now? Who, who or what were the moments that helped define that for you? I would say there wasn't a light bulb moment. It was more a gradual, it was like sort of shaving away 
at, <laughs> uh, at, the, at the truth and finally getting down to the core of, of, of what I should be doing. And it took a while for me to forgive myself for that. I had this feeling, maybe external pressure that I had to do it fast and I had to get there first. And actually, I feel like I have um, more life experience for having taken my time. And, and, and as a musician, life experience is everything because you're communicating, you're telling stories about life as a musician. And if all you've ever known is the world of music competitions, piano practice and conservatoire, arguably you have a more narrow view of life that doesn't allow you to communicate as clearly. So I'm so grateful for the life experience, but to answer your question, the process was so incremental. I feel like I was sort of knocked gently in the right direction by almost everybody who I met, because sometimes people can see these things much more clearly than you can. And everybody, who I was interacting with was slowly helping me to shave another sort of strip off my direction and really sort of hone down mm. the direction I should have been heading in. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to a lot of people. I'm grateful in particular to one young lady who shall remain nameless, but she sings with the Gabrielli consort now, uh, who applied for a job on my behalf. Wow. Only in a very, in a very informal way, but That's it was one remarkable. of the first, I know, it was, it was one of the first jobs that I ever got. It was the director of chapel music at Mary's College in Durham. This is fantastic. Um, and uh, I talked to her about how I was thinking about it, but I'd only, I didn't do a music degree and I'd only ever sort of conducted happy clappy choirs. And she messaged me a few days later or I think we're on tour together somewhere and she just took me to one side and said I've texted Matthew and I've told him to that you're applying and to expect your application and I was like oh now I have to do it and I got the job. That kind of endorsement though is sometimes what you need isn't it someone else telling you girl you can do this like what what's holding you back? Until you get to the point where those people have built enough of a platform for you that you can stand on it yourself Mm. and I think this is something that is so important about the Women of the Future Network is that we're all a family that are helping to uplift each other and everybody's got the sort of fortitude within them to make the right decisions for themselves and to choose their own path but sometimes you do need that support and that Mm. backing from people who you trust until you have the strength to make the decisions yourself you've done so much in such a short space of time but across all the work that you've done is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of I think the last few months have been really challenging for everybody and my colleagues and I have all you know as I'm sure you've experienced as well had rafts of cancellations in our diaries I went from having a packed summer to a completely empty summer within this period Mm. of about a week and a colleague of mine one of the swingles called Jamie Wright sat down in early March and looked at the sort of wasteland that was stretching ahead of us and really tried to identify the opportunities and think outside the box. Everybody was sort of mourning what we'd lost. Live music has gone, we cannot meet. We certainly can't sing in groups. How are we gonna recreate what we've lost? And Jamie and I sat down and we thought, okay, right, let's not look backwards, let's look forwards and see what kind of opportunities we've got. We've got 
tons of the world's most famous artists with time on their hands. We've got people looking for ways to interact with each other that are not constrained by the bounds of geography, for example. And we've got the ability to make something which is on demand. It's not constrained in terms of time, which means that there's a new demographic we could reach of people who have previously not been able to take part in musical activities, like those who are housebound or those who work shifts and can't make a regular time every week. There's an opportunity to engage these people and, and give them some really high quality music making opportunities. And so we started a group called the Stay at Home Choir and we got in touch. We spent the first two or three days on the phone to various people and got in touch with our friends and colleagues and people who are making music to a high level all around the world and set up what's essentially now grown into a little digital platform really to connect the world's like most famous classical artists to music lovers in a really direct way. And I'm really proud of that because we were faced with nothing and it was really scary. And it was tempting to think, okay, now's the time to batten down the hatches and go into hibernation and hope that somebody else will solve our problems. It, it feels strange for me to talk about it like this because we've always been talking about how, what, how we're creating experiences for our members. So it's, it's strange to reflect on it to you. But we think that what we've built is a really valuable asset to music because it's allowing these people who would otherwise have been excluded from creative music making and musical community more than anything, meeting other people with the same interests and, and really interacting with them. And, and also it's a new way to, um, to get closer to composers and artists. If they're not on tour in your country, when else do you get this kind of access to them? So there we go. Um, Stay at Home Choir has been running for four months now. Um, we have more than 15,000 members in 72 countries around the world. And, uh, and the sky's the limit, really. We've, uh, we've got a pipeline lined up until Christmas. And then we'll see where we go from there. It's quite extraordinary to hear you talking about it. Because as you say, when your 2020 started for you, you must have thought, right, great. I know what I'm doing. Packed summertime, you know, busy all through the year. March comes. And like you say, pretty instantaneously, you, you and Jamie then think we've got to do something about this. And it sounds like you did it pretty quickly and were quite reactionary. But now that you say the accessibility, you're probably bringing it to new audiences. Everyone's just that level of enthusiasm and joy that you're bringing to people's lives in a time that's pretty damn dire otherwise. And that in itself is a great achievement, but it's something you probably never thought would happen this year. It's been a lifeline for me as well, because I have been able to connect with musicians and carry on having those conversations about the things that really matter to me. Mm. So from an entirely selfish perspective, having this musical community to engage with and interact with has been a complete lifeline for me through this time, as well as the sort of excitement of building something new. Mm. Um, and so I don't know what I would have done without it, to be honest. Right, I have some quick fire questions for you. What would you describe as your greatest success? actually taking the plunge to pursue professional music in the first place. And your greatest failure? Um, ooh, I haven't actually thought about this in advance. So yeah. <laughs> this is good. Oh, I like the spontaneity is good. <laughs> <You'll have laughs> off to, the cuff. Off the cuff. Think about it. What about, oh. 
difficult, that one, I had to think. My biggest failure is not particularly interesting to listen to. It's just, I didn't get a job in an organisation I've been involved in since I was 13. It's big for you, though. That's the whole point. It's very it big for me. It's not particularly interesting for listeners, though. Um, I, I also, I'm very proud of myself for how long it took for me to remember that, because that means that I've successfully dealt with my feelings of rejection. <laughs> okay, the mantra of the woman of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I feel like you're so much stronger when you are working with other people in general you can get much further than you could on your own. Um, and that is because when you collaborate with people, you bring other people with you on your journey or other people bring you with them. And it's almost like a united front moving forward. You know, you're always stronger in a team than you are on your own. And two very driven people driving in opposite directions move nowhere. It's interesting that you said that because right at the start you were saying how you weren't a team player when you were at school. Yeah, I do hope you don't include that in the interview. <laughs> that makes it good though because you come full circle. Talking about your oh, whole career absolutely. again, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think primary school Tory Longden was probably a very different person to um, <coughs> almost 30 <coughs> Tory Longden. <laughs> Is there anything that scares you? Yeah, I'm, I'm scared by how much I consider what other people think of me i'm scared by letting those feelings direct how i act and that's a sort of long-term piece of personal progression for me i suppose it's unnerving to think that somebody else coming in and giving an external perspective sometimes without the whole story can knock you off kilter because it has the power if you let it to have a huge sway over your life Mm. Um, so you know I'm not saying I've got all the answers um, but it's something that I come back to quite a lot it's like how can I how can I set myself up to make really authentic decisions do you overthink uh, am I an overthinker I used to be an overthinker I think I'm a lot more laid back now yeah I think I'm a lot more laid back now but I certainly used to overthink a lot what's left on your to-do list for today? For life, for life. Well, we can start with today and go from there. <laughs> going to Sainsbury's later, I don't know. <laughs> the first day of the rest of my life. Now I'm going to the post office. That's going to be Ooh. really exciting. I am so excited to develop other areas of my life outside of work. I'm so excited to develop my home life and my little nest with my wonderful partner, Jack. I'm excited to travel and meet new people, either through my work or outside of it. And it's tricky. When your main hobby becomes your profession, in quite a sort of surprising U-turny kind of way, it's taken me a while to develop other interests outside of music because music was my life and then it became my job. Mm. So what's next for me is finding and developing new things that really inspire me. My job inspires me endlessly, but I feel like it's time for me to find other awesome things that inspire me as well. So, you know, now that I'm able to sort of lift my head and, and look around at the scenery a little more. 
Thank you so much, Tori. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and thank you for taking the time in your busy day and go back oh, to your stay at home choir. I'm going to have to look into that a bit more. It sounds fantastic. Do you sing, Kim? I did when I was at school quite bad. Oh, and I used to be in a rock band, actually. I forgot about that. But um, yeah, I had a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a, when you're a teenager and you go a bit nuts. I, I was in a rock band, but yeah. It's a risk-free way of exploring singing again because nobody else can hear you. So I'd encourage you to give it a go. I think that's always the best way, to be honest. <laughs> for me anyway, but thank you so much. It's been brilliant. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.